0: Andrew Womack Ministries presents part five in the Christian First Aid Kit, a six part album. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. I've been teaching from John chapter 14. Actually, I had a teaching that I did 20 or 30 years ago, and I entitled a Christian Survival Kit that's teaching verse by verse through John 14, 15, and 16. And during these services, of course, we, uh, there were 16 teachings in that original set that I did. This is an abbreviated version, so rather than this being a survival kit, it's more like a first aid kit, but it's still good. How many of you, this is your first service that you've made during this series? Can I see your hands? Praise God. Quite a few of you. Well, I encourage you to get the teaching because I really believe it's been good. I believe it's changed people, and it's things that Jesus told his disciples The night before his crucifixion, they were about to enter into a terrible time, the biggest crisis of their life. And it says in John 16, he said these things to them so that they wouldn't be offended. They could have walked in victory if they would have followed his instructions. And in little tiny capsule form, I believe he went back and basically rehashed all of the things that he had taught them over three and a half years of ministry. He gave them... Just little quick bullet points, reminders of things that he'd been teaching them throughout this whole time in preparation for this crisis period of time. So we can benefit from this because if you aren't in a crisis, you will be someday. And what do you do in a crisis situation? This tells you what to do. And I'm not even going to go back and summarize it because I'd preach it. But we've already covered four things and we've basically gone through, we went through about the first 20-something verses of the 14th chapter. I also took some scriptures this morning. I was talking about how often he emphasized the Holy Spirit. And we just talked about how essential having the baptism of the Holy Spirit and flowing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit is to you walking in victory. You know, there's a scripture that is one of my favorite scriptures in Jeremiah ten twenty-three. And Jeremiah was talking about, uh, he was prophesying the judgment of God on the nation of Israel. And he, in the uh, 10th chapter, he says, How could this happen to the people who were once the apple of God's eye, who were favored more than any group of people that ever lived on the earth? How could it happen that the enemy was coming in and raping and plundering and destroying the apple of God's eye? And Jeremiah was just perplexed. How could this happen? And he answered his own question in Jeremiah ten twenty three, 23. And he says, "O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. You want to know how they fell into such terrible situation? Because they started doing it their way. They didn't follow God. They weren't led by the Holy Spirit. And the same thing is still true today. How do people get into the mess that they're in? How does their life spin so far out of control? It's not the way that God intended. God came to give us an abundant life. It is not His will for you to be sick and poor and defeated and depressed and oppressed and have all of the conflicts and the fears so that every time something happens, you just can't cope with it. You're just living in constant fear. That's not the way that God made anybody to be. How do people get into that situation? Because God didn't make us to just run by ourselves. He gave us the choice. You have the freedom. He's not going to force you to follow Him. But He created us to be dependent upon Him. To not lean under our own understanding, but to follow Him. And the reason our life gets out of control isn't because of other people. It's not because of any of those things. It's because we aren't following the leading of the Lord. The Holy Spirit will literally transform your life... Like I was teaching this morning out of uh, chapter 16, verse 13, John 16, 13. He will show you things to come. He will show you when Satan has traps for you and pitfalls. He will direct you around it. God, through the Holy Spirit, intends for you to live an abundant life, but you have to follow His leading. And so that's what we were talking about. We got down here to the 26th verse. I used uh, that verse. Let's drop on down here to verse twenty. Seven. This is John chapter 14, verse 27. And remember, he's telling them things that are going to help them in a crisis situation, things that they need to operate in. And he says in verse 27, "...Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid." That's what he started verse 1 with, and he's reinforcing it again. And he's saying that peace ought to be a hallmark, a uh, characteristic of truly born-again people who are walking in victory, who are responding to the Holy Spirit. And I can preach on that all night. Man, that's powerful. Peace is a tremendous indication of where you are with the Lord. If there is a lack of peace, if you are in turmoil, if you aren't settled, and uh, another way of saying this is secure, if you're insecure... It's a, it's a statement about that you aren't relying on the Lord the way that you should. You're still defending yourself and protecting yourself. You know, when I first got started in the Lord, and I'm not criticizing myself or anybody else, because nobody starts off mature. You have to grow. But I remember that I used to have to prove myself. And if somebody disagreed with me, I would argue with them. I would argue at the drop of a hat, and I'd drop my hat to get to argue. I mean, I had to prove that I was right, and I thought I was doing them a service. I thought I was sharing the truth with them, but you know what it was really about? I was insecure, and when people would say something that countered what I said, I had to win the argument and come out on top to feel like I was right, and if I couldn't feel right, then it actually shook my faith in what I was believing and you know, over the years, I've just gotten to a place where, man, I just, I talk all of the time. I had not got time to talk to people anymore. And uh, if if they don't agree, if they have a question and if they're sincere and want an answer, then I'll discuss things with them to help them. But I don't have to get a person to come around to my point of view. I'm, I'm secure in what I believe. I know what I believe. And if you need help, I'll sit there and talk and explain. I'll probably refer you to a book or a CD because I've already got it all said right there. But I'm not going to argue with you and I don't have to prove anything. And you can think what you want to. And whether or not you think I've won or not, I'm, I'm secure. I have peace in my life. And I believe that this is um, something that the Lord here was talking about, that He gives us His peace. You don't have to win every argument. You don't have to prove to everybody that you're right. Man, there is so much peace in just regardless what a person thinks of you. You know what God thinks of you. You know what God has done in your heart. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. If you were watching my program this week, I hadn't seen my television program in a while. But I've read some comments and I remember what I taught on. And... um, I was teaching about this and how Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 12, don't let any man despise you. He didn't say don't, you know, he didn't go to the people in the church and say don't despise Timothy. He told Timothy, don't let them despise you. Our world is trying to change everybody else's opinion about us so that nobody will ever rub us the wrong way, so that nobody will ever say anything that offends us, and so that nobody will ever do anything to upset us. But that's impossible. We live in a fallen world. You can't do that. There's always going to be people who are demon-possessed and carnal to rub you the wrong way. If you are trying to use your faith to get rid of all opposition and nobody will ever treat you wrong, you are going to be sadly disappointed. It's just not going to happen. There's always people. It's not only racial prejudice. There's prejudice about whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, just a million different things. And you just can't overcome prejudice by changing everybody else. But what you can do is not let them despise you. It doesn't matter what they think about you. You can be so secure in the Lord that if you don't like me, it's your problem. It's not my problem. That's really powerful. If you missed any of that, you ought to go to my website and look at those TV programs. (laughs) I tell you what, I had some people that were emailing today that just got set free through that. But you can come to a place to where you're secure in the Lord, where you have peace. Man, that is so essential in a crisis situation. It's one thing to have a storm out there, but if you ever let the storm on the inside, you'll sink. You know, a boat can go through a hurricane as long as all the water stays on the outside, amen? But you let that water on the inside and that thing's going to sink. You let the problems in on the inside, you start getting upset and insecure and hurt and bitter and and you're you're going down. You need to operate in peace and a supernatural peace. And then he said in verse 28... You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto my father for my father is greater than I. Let me just explain a couple of things about this verse. This is an amazing passage of scripture. And there's a lot of other verses that say the same thing. But Jesus, when he says, you've heard how I go unto my father. Uh, In this chapter and also in the context of these verses, he was talking about it was time for him to be crucified and he was going to die and go to be with the Father and he wouldn't be with them anymore. So when he was talking about going to his Father, he was talking about you've heard how I've said I'm going to die and I'm going to go to the Father. And then he said this, If you loved me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. But because I've said I'm going to die, sorrow has filled your heart. Now think about this. This is amazing. If you can grab hold of these truths that I'm talking about, this will change your life. Most people, if somebody dies, if a tragedy, and it doesn't have to be just death, but just all kinds of tragedy, most people think that the hurt and the sorrow and the pain is actually therapeutic, that it's natural that you have to do it, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should be emotionless and not feel things, but I'm saying most people indulge this and they just get shattered and totally destroyed because this person died or because this tragedy happened to a person or something like that. Jesus said he was dying. Most people would think the disciples should have been broken hearted. The disciples should have been crushed. It's normal for them to have sorrow. It's normal for them to have grief if they saw Jesus crucified. And yet Jesus himself is saying that if you loved me, you would rejoice because I'm dying and going to my Father. That's not me saying that. That's Jesus saying it. This is what Jesus said. And most people just can't compute this. And they thought, how could that be? And let me just share this with you, that really, our grief, this is what this little booklet I've got is all about. Self-centeredness is the root of all grief. You know what really destroys people? Now again, the, Jesus, uh, Paul said that I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. There, there's nothing wrong with when something bad happens, you're not liking it. You aren't supposed to like something that God never intended to happen in the first place. He didn't create us to die. So I'm not saying you like it. I'm not saying it blesses you. But I am saying that there is a difference between the way the world grieves and the way a believer deals with problems and stuff. And really at the root of this grief that destroys your life and hurts you is selfishness, self-centeredness. The reason the disciples were so grief-stricken is because their hopes were dashed. They had believed that Jesus was going to set up a physical kingdom right then. They didn't understand the death and the burial, the resurrection, and Him going back to heaven and then coming uh, for a second time. They thought there was going to be a physical kingdom established. They mentioned it a couple of times. And they were waiting on seeing these things happen right then when it didn't happen Their hopes were crushed. It says Proverbs 13, 12, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you have a hope, whether it's a real hope or a false hope, and if it isn't obtained, then your heart becomes sick when you don't see something you've hoped for happen. And so their heart became sick because their hopes were dashed and they were thinking about what's going to happen to me I left my family, I left my business, I have suffered all of these things because I was hinging my hopes on the fact that he's establishing a physical kingdom. James and John asked to be sitting on his right hand and on his left and they were all of a sudden thinking, what about me? And not only was Jesus crucified, but they were after his followers too. And there was a lot of hostility towards them. And I'm sure that they were thinking, man, what's going to happen to me? And the reason that they were grieving when Jesus talked about death was because they were thinking, no, this can't happen. What would happen to me? If they could have somehow or another divorced themselves from their self-motivated feelings and have thought only about Jesus, he said, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. If they would have thought about it totally separate from their self, they could have looked at it and said, well, I don't understand everything. I believe Jesus was the Messiah and he was going to establish the kingdom. But Jesus constantly was talking about he loved his father. He only did what the father did, that the father loved him. He loved the father. If anybody ever had a relationship with God, the father, it was Jesus And they could have at least said, man, at least he's going to exit all of this treatment that people have been giving him. He's going to be away from the criticism. He's going to be with the father that he loves. And if they had only been thinking of him and what Jesus desired and what was good for Jesus, they could have literally rejoiced to think that praise God, he finally exited this life and he's with the father that he loves so much. They could have rejoiced is what Jesus is saying. But the reason there was grief was because they were thinking about what's going to happen to me. I miss him so much. And the reason I bring all of this up is to say Jesus is going to their motives. And he's saying that, you know what, it's the fact that you are still so alive to yourself and so dominated about yourself that causes this grief. And again, most people would look at this and think, no, the disciples, something would have been wrong with them if they hadn't have grieved and just been broken hearted. Jesus is saying that if you loved me, you would rejoice. Rejoice right then, in between the crucifixion and the resurrection. If they weren't thinking about themselves and what's going to happen to me in their future, if they would have been only thinking about Him, they could have rejoiced even between the crucifixion and the resurrection before they saw the outcome of it. That's a radical statement. And brothers and sisters, I'm saying that if we would get out of being so self-centered and always gauging everything from... Our perspective in just thinking about how this affects us, it would just, it would literally diffuse Satan's power in your life. You could go all the way back to the book of Genesis and I'm not going to take time to do it, but I'll just mention it. You go back and study it. But basically he tempted Adam and Eve with God has kept something from you. God is not letting you have, and all of the focus was on you aren't all you could be. You could be like God. The truth is, God, they were more like God when they were innocent and following God than when they started trying to obtain things and do it themselves. All self-centeredness does is make you less like God. God is the most selfless creation or being. He's not a creation. He's the most selfless being that exists. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He thought more about you and me than he did himself. Jesus hated going to the cross, not because of just the physical suffering, but he didn't want to be sin. He was holy. He was pure. He didn't want to be sin. He sweat as it was great drops of blood. I mean, his heart literally burst on the inside of him. He was in agony, and yet he loved you and me more than he loved himself. Jesus came down here and lived... uh, an inconspicuous life nobody even knew who he was he was God Almighty living in a physical body being ignored and passed over by everybody and he lived that way he didn't just suffer on the cross he suffered the moment he entered into that body the moment that he was ignored and passed over and Jesus lived here and did all of this can you imagine if you were God would you have limited yourself if the, it, Scripture says the heavens, even the heavens of the heavens can't contain God. It says that He can hold the universe in the span of His hand. Span means the width of your hand. The whole universe, billions and billions of light years, can fit in the palm of His hand. And He became a man and lived in a physical body constrained to a physical body. Can you imagine or see yourself doing that for men that has hated you, that rebelled at you, that killed your prophets, that did all of these things? I tell you, God is the most selfless, the most least promoting being that you've ever come across. If I would have been God, I'd have come down here in a 747 or landed the space shuttle outside of Jerusalem. I'd have done something to impress people. I would have... I wouldn't have appeared to shepherds, man. I'd have appeared to Caesar. I'd have done something. When I rose from the dead, I wouldn't have appeared to Mary Magdalene, a woman who had had seven demons cast out of her. I'd have stood at the foot of Herod's, I mean, Pilate's bed, and I'd have shook it and woke him up. Said, Pilate, are your hands clean now? I'd have gone to those soldiers who blindfolded him and mocked him and said, prophesy if you're the Christ. I'd have gone to them and said, let me tell you something. And I'd have man, I'd have had them all laying out on the floor. (laughs) I'd have just hovered over Jerusalem and all of those people saw him crucified. I'd have manifested myself and made everybody bow the knee. But Jesus never appeared to a single person after his resurrection who wasn't already a believer. He didn't appear to a single person because faith is what pleases him. God is not a self-promoting God. Jesus said, I am meek. And lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto yourself. This this is mind-boggling. And even most Christians don't see God this way. But God is a humble God. That's that's nearly impossible. That doesn't even seem like it computes. It's an oxymoron. But He really is. He is not self-promoting. And that's the way that Jesus was. Jesus humbled himself and lived among us. He became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He humbled himself and bore the burden and did all of these things. That is the nature of God. And this arrogance and self-centered that most of us have been brought up... Well, let me just rephrase that. That all of us have been brought up into where we are the center of the universe and the world revolves around us is an ungodly attitude. And it's the beachhead of the devil. It's the landing zone. It's how he gets a foothold in your life. If you weren't so concerned about yourself, Satan wouldn't be able to do a lot of things that he has freedom to do in our lives. But it's because we love ourselves so much that we are so easily offended. You know, if you had a corpse down here tonight... I could spit on the corpse, kick the corpse, insult the corpse, ignore the corpse, and if it's a corpse, it won't matter. Right. You know why we get so hurt is because we aren't dead to ourselves. Because self is so important in what everybody thinks about us is what drives nearly everybody. And as long as you think that way, all the devil's got to do is parade somebody across your path that cuts you off in traffic that ignores you, that doesn't recognize your accomplishments, that, you know, just there's a million buttons that he can push. And I guarantee you, your life is always going to be up and down and hurt. And there's going to be in some form of rejection. And you can't stop that stuff. We live in a fallen world. Your faith is not strong enough to solve everybody else and make them holy. You've got your hands full just dealing with yourself. Amen. And this people, oh God, give me a better mate. Oh God, change this person. You know, in marriage, I used to hold a lot of marriage seminars. And this is one of the things that I taught that your authority ends at the end of your nose. You cannot make your mate turn to God and love God and treat you right. I've actually seen people. I saw a tape one time that said seven ways to change your mate. And I listened to it just to see what they had to say. And it was witchcraft. You can't change your mate you can influence them but they have a total choice of whether or not they're going to receive first corinthians chapter 7 he told the women and the men how to treat each other and he says for how do you know old man whether you shall save your wife and how do you know old wife whether you shall save your husband you can't claim them you can't make them get saved you can't make them love god And yet there's people that this is their whole thing. They're trying to change everybody out there and make everybody do this. And they're claiming this and binding that. And you know what? You just can't do that. It's witchcraft. God doesn't do that. He will influence a person. He will draw them and touch their life, but he will not make a person get saved. He will not make a person get healed. He will protect your right to go to hell. And you could have a hundred people forcing you and trying to make you get saved. And he'll protect your freedom of free choice. You cannot be made to do anything. God doesn't force people to do stuff. Some of you are chewing on that one. If I had time, I could verify that. But anyway, that's a side trip. It's You just can't force a person to do it. But you know what you can do? You can deal with you. And if you got rid of your selfishness and if you started walking in love the way that Jesus walked in love and if you laid your life down, if you treated your wife like a queen, chances are she'd probably treat you like a king. If you treated your husband like a king, chances are he'd probably treat you like a queen. And in our marriage seminars, we didn't... Tell everybody about how to get your mate to do this and to treat you this way and how to do this and this. What we did was tell people how for you to respond regardless of what they do and how to walk in love. And we saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of marriages change, not by you changing your mate, but by you changing you. And when your mate goes to living with Jesus, chances are they'll get changed. That's a totally different approach. But see, most people, even most Christians, are praying, oh God, fix this, and oh God, touch this person, and oh God, solve this problem. And that's not the way that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you yield yourself, you take up your cross, you die to yourself. It's not you living, but it's Christ living in you. And as you walk like that, God supernaturally flows through you. You allow the anointing of God to flow and things begin to work out because you have dealt with yourself. And yet most people, it's it's all about self. And this is how Satan is able to come in. You know, most people, how many people does it take to screw in a light bulb? With most people, it's just one. You just hold it and the world revolves around you. (laughs) That's the way that most people are. We think we're the center of the universe. And this is how Satan gains access to our life. Jesus is saying that if you loved me, if it wasn't about you, if you were void of your own selfish interest, you could rejoice that he's finally going to the Father and getting out of this mess and going to the one that he loves so much. You know, we had a man that worked for me, and his daughter drowned, one-year-old daughter drowned in a little pond that he made in his backyard. And it was a tragic situation, and this man was just totally grief-stricken, and he didn't want anybody to come. Uh, There wasn't going to be a funeral, but they did have a viewing, and the body was there, and so since he was an employee, Jamie and I were standing there, and hundreds and hundreds of people came by and saw this little baby, and it was a tragic situation, and People were saying things like, she'll never know what it's like, you know, to have her first birthday cake. She'll never know what it's like to have a tricycle. She'll never experience the joy of going to school. She'll never know what it's like to date and to be a mother and to get married and have children and all of the... And they were just grieving over what happened to this child. And it was a bad situation. There was no way around it. And the man felt guilty because he had built the pond and didn't protect it. And it was a tragic situation. And anyway, hundreds of people came through and he hadn't planned on a funeral, but they just came through and they were all standing around in the funeral parlor and they wouldn't leave. And so finally he came to me and he says, would you do a memorial service? I mean, just at the spur of the moment, hundreds of people there. And I didn't know what to say. It was a tragic situation. And basically, this is a synopsis of it, but basically I got up and I said, all of us are grieving over what this little baby's missing and she's not going to have her first birthday cake and her first bicycle and first day of school and she's missing all these things. And I said, you know what, that's from our perspective. What we're really grieving for is ourself. We aren't going to get to see her have this and this and this. But I said, I can guarantee you this little kid, and I use David as an example, is in the presence of the Lord. This little kid is missing all of the hurt and the pain and the ridicule of other kids and all of the pain of sickness and disease and the hurt and the divorce and things that go on in this world. And I said, they are in the presence of the Lord. God is compensating this kid. And I said, there's nothing wrong with you missing the child. I said, that's normal. I said, you know, uh, it is bad what happened and we are going to miss her. But I said, put it into perspective. What we're really grieving over is our loss, not her loss. And did you know what? That just diffused things. It didn't mean that there still wasn't some grief and sorrow, but it wasn't a grief of this world that paralyzes you and destroys you. A lot of what we're going through, there may be something that happened that yes, it touches your emotions, but when your emotions get out of whack and it just destroys you and you you can't get out of bed and you can't function and you wind up just being destroyed and devastated. The bottom line is it's because you're thinking about you and how this has affected you and what your loss is, not the other person. Thank you for that one amen. I know some people think that this is harsh, but I'm saying it to help you. Jesus said, if you loved me, you would rejoice. But the reason you're in grief is because you're thinking so much as about how what is this going to do to me? How is this going to affect me? What's going to happen in my life? You can literally reach a place to where you find your contentment and your satisfaction in who you are in Christ and whether other people accept you, whether they recognize you, whether they promote you, whether they criticize you, if they do something to you, it doesn't matter because you've already found your place in the Lord and you, don't, you aren't codependent upon people approving you and recognizing you. You don't have to have them stroke you. You can reach a place to where you are dead to yourself. And you're alive unto God. And when you do that, it just makes you, in a sense, immune to Satan. It's like all of his darts just bounce off. Nothing sticks because he. you have to have this selfishness for it to really penetrate and dominate you. There's a couple of heads nodding over that one. You're still thinking that one over. But it's true. Let me give you another verse. Turn over here to Proverbs chapter 13. And you need to look at this in the Bible or you wouldn't believe this is there. (laughs) You ought to look this up in your Bible. Proverbs chapter 13. And in verse 10. Only by pride cometh contention. But with the well advised is wisdom. That is one profound scripture. You know, in the Hebrew, that word only, it means only. (laughs) This means that there is no other way that contention comes except through pride. I'm going to come back to this, but look in chapter 14. Or you know, I'm not even sure where that verse is. It's right here close, 14 something. I should have marked this. But anyway, it says that the beginning of strife is as when one lets out water, therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with. Maybe that's 1714. It's something. Here it is 17:14 The beginning of strife is as when one lets out water therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with and this is saying that the beginning of strife is contention so put that back to Proverbs chapter 13 verse 10 only by pride cometh contention or only by pride is how strife starts only Did you know that's not what most people think? Most people think, well, it's what this person did to me. That's what made me mad. People can't make you mad. Satan can't do anything to you without your consent and cooperation. If it was just a chemical, physical law that if somebody says something or hurts you, boom, you've got to respond. You can't help it. Well, then it would have been impossible for Jesus to turn around to the very people who crucified Him and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You can love people that hate you and we're instructed to do so. We're commanded to do so. There isn't anything, there is no law that just makes you respond the way you do. And yet most of us think that. Most of us think we can't control our emotions. Most of us think, that. well, the reason I'm angry is because they did this. What other people does cannot make you angry. It's going to give you a temptation, an opportunity for it, but you have choice whether or not you get mad or glad, whether you become bitter or better. It's how you process everything, and it's our selfishness and self-centeredness that really amplifies what people do to us. Again, if you were a corpse, if you were dead to yourself, and if people said something about you, It wouldn't bother you because you're dead. You don't care what people think about you. Amen. I know some of you are thinking, you're weird. (laughs) Well, I think you're weird. It just depends which standard you're using. If you're using the Bible standard and it says only, only by pride comes contention. And let me just... Explain that pride here isn't just talking about arrogance, thinking you're better than everybody else. That's only one manifestation of pride. That's like having a stick. If you hold a stick, there's two ends to the stick. One end might be arrogance, thinking you're superior to everybody else. But did you know that uh, uh, timidness, shyness, low self-esteem is the same end? Of the, I mean, it's the same stick. It's just an opposite expression. People who are timid and shy are extremely prideful. And some of you are thinking, that's not true. Pride, in its simplest terms, is just self centeredness, just self focus. And it doesn't matter if you're focused thinking I'm better than everybody else or if you're focused thinking I'm worse than everybody else, you're self focused. You're self centered. A shy person is an extremely self-centered person, and I can say that with conviction because I couldn't even look at a person in the face and talk to them. I was so introverted and shy, and I can tell you what I was thinking. It was, what's everybody going to think about me? Am I going to say something stupid? Am I going to do something? Am I going to make a mistake? And so I was just paranoid with fear that I was going to do something wrong the way people were thinking about me. When I first started ministering, I still reflected this, and I would just nearly pass out. I'd get so fearful trying to minister, and it was pitiful, and I struggled. And a man came up to me one time after I preached, and he says, You know, you've got some really good things to say. And he says, If you ever got to where you were more concerned about the people you're ministering to than you are about yourself and what people thought about you, you could be a blessing. And it was absolutely true. And it set me free. And I realized that, you know, what was bothering me was what people would think about me. There are some of you out there that you've had God heal you. God has saved your marriage. God has delivered you from drugs. God has shown you things in the word of God. You've got things that could change other people. And yet, if I was to ask you to come up here and share, your first thought is, Oh man, what, I don't know what to say. What if I get up there and don't have anything? To, and self, 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 what's everybody going to think of me? How am I going to look? And it'll paralyze you and keep you from speaking. But if you could get to where you love people more than you love yourself, you'd walk up to a person, even if you thought they were going to reject you, and you would tell them the truth and give them the opportunity to reject the truth on their own instead of you doing it for them. But the reason most of us are timid and shy and we won't share things, what's this person going to say about me? What are they going to think? Are they going to call me a religious fanatic? Self, 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 self. It's selfishness. And so I'm saying that when it's talking about pride, this isn't only talking about arrogance, thinking you're better. You could be thinking you're worse than everybody else. I taught on this one time about 30 years ago and there was a man Who came up to me he was a little mexican guy and he walked up and he said look i respect you god has used you to speak into my life but he says you're wrong on this one he says pride isn't my problem if anything i've got such low self-esteem there's not a person in this church that thinks worse of themselves than i do and i got to telling him i said that's pride And he says, no, no, I've got low self-esteem. I said, low self-esteem is pride. Pride at its core is self-centeredness. And low self-esteem is very, very, very self-centered. Thinking about yourself. Timidness and shyness is not just your personality trait that you were born with. It's self-centeredness. I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's true. Look at this passage over in Numbers, chapter 16, I believe it is. I may be off on that one, but I'll find it quickly. Maybe it's Numbers chapter 12. Here it is, Numbers chapter 12. It says in verse 1, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because he, of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. You know what this is talking about? Moses was a Jew, an Arab, Middle Eastern complexion. An Ethiopian was black. It was an interracial marriage. They got mad because he married a black woman. And they got upset with him. And in verse 2 it says, And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. They came against God's man." And God heard it and look at this in verse 3. It says in parentheses, now the man Moses was very meek, talking about humility, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Well, that is one powerful statement. Moses was the meekest man above every person on the earth. We don't know how many people there were on the earth, but there was 3 million Jews that came out of Egypt and they were the minority, so there had to be more than that, probably 6 million or more in Egypt. And then there was all of the people in the promised land and you know, there could have been 15, 20, 30 million people on the earth at that time. I don't know how many there were and Moses was the meekest of them all. That's amazing. And you know what makes that even more amazing? Moses wrote that. Most people think if you're truly humble, you just, oh, I'm so unworthy and I'm worth nothing. And this is what religion has taught us is humility is, oh, God, we come before you so humbly today. People stand up there and I I don't have much of a voice, but I I know I'm not very good. But the Bible says, make a joyful noise. You all pray for me as I sing. And then they get up there and they have five years worth of operatic training and they got this booming voice. It's just a religious con. It's selfishness. It's a way of having people come up and say, oh, you're really good. Don't put yourself down and you're seeking a backhanded compliment. To prove it, go up to them during the week in the supermarket and say, you know what? I agree. You've got the worst voice I think I've ever heard in my life. And see if they just go, well, that's what I said. I'm just making a joyful noise. No, they'll get mad and upset. You know why they get upset? Because self-centeredness is the root of all grief, amen. (laughs) Only by pride comes contention. For, For Moses to say, I am the meekest man on the face of the earth, this just blows most people's definition of meekness. They think meekness is thinking that you're no good and you knock yourself down. And you can't knock yourself down low enough, but you go one inch above what your right evaluation is of you, and that's pride. But you know what? It's also pride to debase yourself in a false humility. That's pride. It's self-centered. You're worried about what everybody's thinking about you. You know, Moses said, I'm the meekest man on the face of the earth, and he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It takes a humble man to say that that didn't care about what people would think about him. What if I asked right now, everybody bow your head and close your eyes and we're going to pray and ask God to show us who's the meekest person in this auditorium. (laughs) And what if we prayed and said, now when the Lord speaks to you, if you're the meekest person, stand up and say, it's me. (laughs) There's some of you that think, man, even if the Lord told me, I'd never stand up and say it. What would people think about me? then you aren't the meekest person in here. You're prideful. You're still worried about self. You're still focused on self. A truly humble person isn't going to exalt themselves, but they won't debase themselves. They'll say what God says about them. And if God told you that you were the meekest person, a truly meek person would stand up and say, it's me. Amen. We've got to get rid of all this religious stuff and realize Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth and he was proud of it. <laughs> Not really, I'm just using that. To... But you've got to understand that humility isn't debasing yourself and acting like you're unworthy and stuff. You've been made the righteousness of God. And if God says you're the righteousness of God and that you can cast out devils and that you're the above only and not beneath, you're the head and not the tail, it is it is pride and arrogance are at the very least religious for you to say, oh, I'm, old, I'm nothing, I can do nothing. That's wrong. Humility is just not being self-centered. It's just whatever God says about you. Did God tell you to get up and stand and say in the name of Jesus and speak to somebody and see them heal? It's humility to follow the Lord. And it would be arrogance for you not to do it, thinking, what's everybody going to think about me? That's self-centered. So when it says only by pride comes contention, I think it would be probably more appropriate for us the way we talk today to say only by your self-centered, self-focus is what causes you to be angry. It's not what people do to you. It's not your personality type. It's your selfishness. If you were dead to yourself, you wouldn't care what people are saying about you and whether or not they recognize you and give you all of these things. It's your selfishness that makes you angry. And this is intended to help you. Because if other people are your problem, you're never going to stop other people from doing things wrong. People are going to do things wrong as long as there are people on the earth. If the only time you're going to be happy and joyful is when nobody gets in your way, nobody steps on your toes, you're never going to be happy. But if the thing that's making you angry and strifeful and hurting on the inside is your selfishness, you can deal with that. And then regardless of what people do to you, you aren't going to have to be upset, angry, bitter, because you're just dead to yourself. Self isn't the most important person. The scripture tells us we should think of others better than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2. Most people don't do that. The scripture says we're supposed to be dead to ourselves. Most people aren't. Most people, the world revolves around us. And this is how Satan is able to cause us fear. You know, again, if you're a dead man, how do you threaten a dead man? See, Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was dead to himself. And so they'd come in to say, we're going to kill you if you pro- don't quit preaching the gospel. And he says, awesome, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. No problem. Well, we'll lock you up. And then he just starts singing and God sends an earthquake and he gets all of the jailer and everybody else saved. And so they say, well, we're going to lose you. And he says, fine. And he goes, preaches the gospel. You know what? You can't intimidate a dead person. You know why we're so worried about our future and worried about this is cuz we're so alive to ourselves. We haven't learned to turn things over and trust in him and we are we are holding our life in our hand and that's the reason that you're worried and fearful. That's the reason that you're worried about the uh economy and stuff. If you were truly dead to yourself, it doesn't matter. God's taking care of you and Lord will take care of you. You'll survive. God'll get you through. You wouldn't worry so much what people say about you. This is a big one. Most of us are so insecure that if somebody comes up, and especially somebody that you love, doesn't appreciate you, it just devastates you. Now again, I'm not saying you should enjoy it. God didn't make us for rejection. If you enjoy rejection and people being mad at you, something's wrong with you. God didn't make you to be that way. But I'm saying... You ought to get to a place to where you just are able to cast it over on the Lord and say, Father, you know what? I I don't care what they think about me. I love you. I'm doing what you tell me to do. And you just, when you see people criticize you, the only thing you do is say, Father, am I doing what you told me to do? And if he says yes, then you just go ahead and who cares what people think? You know, I don't like people to dislike me. I hope everybody likes me. I hope everybody's blessed. But if you come up here and start ragging on me, it will not keep me up tonight. Because I'll cast my care about it over on the Lord. I'll say, Father, did I say what you told me to say? And to the best of my ability, I'm following God. And if he told me to do that, I don't care if the devil himself is upset. I'm just going to go on and do what God says. I've come to a place of being secure in the Lord. And it's not about me building a reputation. And brothers and sisters, most ministers today are... Fearful of people and they're playing to the crowd and afraid to speak the truth. And that just filters right on down through the body of Christ. Most of us are afraid to say anything to our workmates and to our relatives and to all of these people, to your neighbor, because somebody might glance at you, somebody might do something. We're insecure because we are so wrapped up in ourselves. If you are all wrapped up in yourself, you make a very small package. And I'm telling you, just like these verses, the only thing that makes you angry is not what people are doing, but the fact that you are so focused on yourself. That's what makes it hurt. If you were dead to yourself, you'd get to the place where you don't even care what other people think. You know, your focus determines your reaction. If you are focused on yourself... You can't have anything but a negative response when somebody does something bad to you. It's just the way that we're wired. If you aren't focused on yourself, if you love somebody else more than you loved yourself, you would be thinking about them. When they came out and just began to spew all of this anger and bitterness, your response would be, what's wrong with them? What's happened to them to make them so angry? Why are they like this? But instead of thinking about that person and why they do what they do, most of us are so focused on ourselves that we just think about ourselves and we get angry. You know, my brother, he's four and a half years older than me, and my brother has a violent temper. He nearly killed me a bunch of times. That's not much of an exaggeration. I mean, he would lose his temper and do wild things. But you know what? After he cooled off, he would come back and he told me this a hundred times. He says, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was hurting you. I was only thinking about this happened to me. And what he was doing was validating the scripture. He didn't realize that anybody else was being hurt. He was just thinking of himself. I bet you that most people sitting right here have said things to your mate or to somebody else and you've hurt them. And when you see how you've hurt them, all of a sudden you come to yourself and you think, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you, but I, and you were just self-centered, self-focused. That's what causes strife. That's what the scripture says. I watched a program one time on TV and it was about capital punishment. And they were trying to sway your opinion away from capital punishment. You know, I don't like capital punishment. It doesn't make me feel good, but I think it's scriptural and I believe it's a deterrent. And I think that we ought to have it. You can disagree with that, but that's my opinion based on what I understand of the Word. So anyway, even though I believed in capital punishment, I watched this show that was trying to get you to disbelieve in capital punishment. And you know what they did? They showed a man on death row who was there for rape and murder, and they showed him in this cell. And then it went to black and white, and they got this depressing music playing. And they showed you this man sitting there with his elbows on his knees and his hands up against his head, like this, just sitting there, dejected and depressed. And they showed you around his little 8 by 10 cell and how oppressive it was, and that he was on solitary confinement. And then they took the camera down the hall and showed where they were going to execute this man. And this morbid music was playing. And then they took pictures of him when he was a baby. And they showed his pictures when he was a baby. And you know, it's hard to think that someday you're going to take a baby, and regardless of what this baby does, you're going to kill it. And it started soliciting sympathy. And you started feeling pity. And then it showed him as a little kid playing and playing cowboys and Indians. And then it showed how bad his life was and how he was abused and how this happened to him. And he went into reformatories and all of this stuff. And by the time it brought you up to where he was, you felt so sorry for this guy. It's like, man, he never even had a chance. And I was even though I believed in capital punishment, I was thinking, God, there's got to be another way. There's got to be something that we could do. And you know what? It totally diffused my anger when I saw his side of what was going on. And I was sitting here trying to process all of this. And the Lord spoke to me and he says, what would happen if you took the girl that he raped and murdered and showed her baby pictures? and showed her growing up innocent and playing with dolls and let's just say that she was a Christian and she had saved herself for her husband and she was godly and she was doing all of these things and then some pervert comes into her life and for self-gratification rapes her and then isn't even man enough to own up to what he did and kills her trying to cover up his crime. If you showed the exact same people that right now are feeling pity and sympathy and saying, oh, let him go. If you showed the exact same people the woman's side of the thing, they'd turn into a vigilante committee and they'd, they'd hang the guy from the nearest tree. It totally depends which side of the issue you're looking at. And if you are always self-centered thinking about, well, they said this about me. What about me? What about my rights? You're always going to operate in strife. You're always going to be hurt because pride is what causes contention, the beginning of strife. But on the other hand, if you loved God and other people more than you loved yourself, if self wasn't so important to you, then when people start doing weird things and blasting you, you'd sit there and, what's wrong with them? What's happened to them? And it would diffuse your anger and instead it would actually solicit sympathy and pity and love for them. I had a woman at work for me that her husband tried to kill her. Broke her neck one time. Took a knife to her. Poured hot grease over her. This is all before I met her. And anyway, he—the way I met her, the police had him separated on the lawn. And he had tried to kill her two children from a previous marriage that night. And the people that introduced me to her said, "Tell this woman, she doesn't have to live with that man." And the scripture does say, "If your husband, if your mate's not pleased to dwell with you, you're free." To go, and I told her, I said, "Well, you're free. You can go if you want to." I said it just about like that, and she says, "What are you saying?" I said, "Well, you're free. You don't have to live with somebody abusing you." And she says, "But she could tell there was more to it." And I said, "But you don't have to leave." I said, it's only the devil in him that makes him act the way he is. You've got God on the inside of you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. I said, you could believe God and I believe God could put enough pressure on him that the chances are this guy would change. And this woman just chose to believe for her husband and the people that brought her to me didn't like it. They got upset. They wanted her to leave him. But anyway, over a period of time, she started to work for me and I just taught her and this woman got to the point that they went for marriage counseling. And this guy, he, he could quote the entire New Testament. He was a Baptist deacon, but he wasn't born again. He could levitate tables, leave his body, and float around and scratch the walls. And he, he was demonic, but he had a religious facade around him and he could fool people. He was a salesman. And uh, anyway, they went for marriage counseling to a guy who was a friend of mine. And this marriage counselor asked the man, what's your side of the story? And he said, well, she's poured hot grease over me. She's broken my neck. She's taken a butcher knife to me. She's tried to kill her children. Everything he was guilty of, he accused her of. He lied about her and went on for five or ten minutes just spinning this story. Let me just ask you, if your mate was to lie about you like that in front of a marriage counselor... Most of you wouldn't have even let them get two sentences out before you were there defending yourself and justifying yourself. Isn't it true? This woman, I taught her these things we were talking about. And she had gone to the Lord and God had healed her heart and she now knew that she was who she was and she had a genuine love for him. This man was dedicated to the devil at birth. They actually killed a chicken and spilt blood, and he was demon-possessed from birth and raised in the occult. And the way he met her was after her first marriage, he walked into a a Dunkin' Donut donut, uh, shop, Daylight Donut or whatever, anyway. Walked into this donut shop. And he had never seen this woman before and he says, your husband died, you have three corporations, your name is, and he told her all of these things. And he says, I'm God, if you will worship me, I'll solve your problems. And so she married him thinking he was God. She worshipped him as God. Then she got born again. that's when all these problems started. So anyway, he lied and said all of these things. She didn't say a word. And the marriage counselor got so mad, he threw his Bible down and he says, divorce this woman. You don't have to live with a person like that. And his wife made him settle down. And there's two sides to every story. Listen to her side. So he says, all right, what's your side of the story? And she said, I used to think that he was my problem. But you know what? God showed me it wasn't what he's done. It's the way I reacted, the fact that I didn't know who I was in Christ, that I got bitter. And says, God has taken care of me. And, and she never defended herself. She never said what he said was a lie. And she says, man, I'm believing God that I'm changing and becoming the woman I'm supposed to be. And she didn't blast him at all. And the counselor says, that's it, divorce her. And so they left. And when they got out to the car, the man was physically trembling. And he says, why didn't you tell them the truth? And she says, Jesus has helped me. She says, I know I'm forgiven and I'm content and happy in the Lord. And if you running me down helps you, it's fine. She says, it's not a problem. That man lost all of his powers. He couldn't levitate tables. He got so afraid that he actually moved out of the house. He says, your your God's bigger than mine. And he left... And for six months was gone. She got her kids out of the basement, began to try and put her family together. And the guy got born again and baptized in the Holy Ghost. And then they had marital problems because he wanted to go to Raymond, become a preacher, and she didn't want to be a preacher's wife. But you know how that happened? She didn't do one thing to run him down. She dealt with what was wrong in her. And man, I tell you, a person who is secure in the Lord and isn't selfish, it just will scare the devil out of people. They don't know how to deal with it. You know, if Jamie was to get mad and in the flesh and want to fight me and she's just going to have a verbal argument with me and blast me, I make my living talking. I can out talk her. And if she wanted to fight, I'm bigger than her. I could take her. But you know what? When she just gets quiet and I know she's praying, I might as well run up the white flag. I've had it. You know, that's strength. Sitting there and defending yourself and saying these things that you know aren't true and you're just venting, that's weakness. It's selfishness. Amen or oh me. (laughs) The truth is, brothers and sisters, we are selfish to the max. And Satan uses this selfishness to hurt us, to make us limp through life and have all of these things. Like Jesus said, if we loved him, we wouldn't be so concerned about us and what's going to happen to us. It would just solve so many problems. You could go through life just like water off a duck's back. All of the criticism, all of the things coming, it doesn't matter. God's your source. God's going to take care of you. It doesn't matter what people say. You can live that way. Some of you are thinking, well, why are we so self-centered? You were born self centered. Your mother just spent all night long in agony delivering a baby. And yet you'll wake her up in the middle of the night because you want to be fed, because you want something. You don't care. You could bring a baby into this service. And you know what? They don't care that there's hundreds of people in here wanting to hear the word of God. A baby will throw a fit and draw all attention to itself. Doesn't know that anybody else exists. An infant is the center of the universe from their perspective. The world revolves around them. You were born selfish. But we're supposed to grow out of it. Parents are supposed to teach you that it's in losing your life that you find your life. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And yet most people have their selfishness and self-centered reinforced all throughout your life growing up. A mother in a store, a little kid will throw a fit. I want this. And mother will say, no, you can't have it. You'll ruin your supper. No, I want it. And if the kid is just willing to fall on the floor and act like an idiot, most parents will go ahead and give them what they want so that. People won't look at them. What are people thinking about me? And they're calling my kid a brat. You know what that is? Self-centered. Most parents are self-centered. And rather than doing what's best for the child, they will do what's easiest on them at the moment. And they just reinforce that self-centeredness. They rewarded it. And we grow up thinking self can get whatever it wants if it is willing to throw a big enough fit. And there are some of you that are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year old adult brats that you no longer fall on the floor and kick and scream. You just turn on the silent treatment. If stairs could kill, they'd be dead. You just turn a cold shoulder. You pout. It's the same thing. It's a temper tantrum. You didn't get your way and you're going to inflict enough damage on them until you feel like they've suffered as much as you've suffered. It's all selfishness. Only by pride comes contention. You were born that way. But you know what the good news is? That you don't have to stay that way. But you've got to choose. And most people have not chosen to make God more important and other people more important than themselves. Because in the first place, most of you have never heard a sermon like this. Most of you have never heard anybody talk like this. Most of us believe that if I don't take care of myself, nobody else will. Not true. God will take care of you. If you will let go, if you'll open up your hand and make yourself vulnerable, God will defend you. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. I will repay. If you will quit trying to defend yourself, God will defend you. Man, if I had time, I'm talking as fast as I can. If I had time, I could give you a hundred examples of how God has supernaturally defended me when I chose not to promote myself and defend myself and I just turned it over to the Lord. And God has had people in front of a hundred or a thousand people come and fall at my feet and kiss my shoes and say, I'm sorry for the things I've said because I didn't defend myself. I had them come and do it publicly. God will take care of you if you will turn it over to Him. But if you are in control of it, you get only what you can produce. You can choose to deny yourself and put God first. But it's a choice. First of all, you've got to know that this is the right thing. Most of us have been taught this is the me generation. Take care of myself. It's all about me. That's not true. So you gotta first of all recognize that's not the best way to go, and then once you recognize it, you gotta recognize God told you to make your life a living sacrifice. You present your body a living sacrifice. God won't force it. He won't make it's not a true sacrifice if God takes it, it's a murder. God's not going to murder you. He wants you to sacrifice yourself. He wants you to offer yourself up and it has to be voluntary. You have to choose to do it. You have to make God more important than you and other people more important than you and what God told you to do more important than you. And when you do that, man, there is immense satisfaction in it. There really is. I haven't got time to say much more. I'm going to have to quit. But you need to learn that just like Jesus said, if we really loved him, we would rejoice at some of the things that are causing you pain right now. The pain and the discomfort would leave because it just doesn't matter. Let me give you one last example that there's a man in our church in Pritchett, Colorado who said that I was lying, stealing money, doing all this stuff and accused me of just multiple things. I went and talked to him and he got mad and screamed and yelled at me, called me all kinds of things. But you know what? I knew I wasn't guilty. And so I didn't take it personally. And I actually was thinking more about him. What has happened to him to make him so bitter against me? And I started praying for him. And I loved him. And I never did get mad at the guy because I wasn't self-centered. I was thinking about him instead of myself. And the next week, I went by his place. And every time I drove by, I always stopped to see him. Jamie was with me and I I just pulled over and I said, I'm going to go in and see this guy. And I said, do you want to come in with me? And she said, no. (laughs) So I went in by myself and he was really cool to me. He wouldn't talk to me. He just kind of nodded his head. He wouldn't say anything. And when I got back out to the car, I told Jamie, I said, something's wrong. He's not friendly the way he normally is. And she just looked at me and I said, honest, I can tell you something's bothering this guy. And she says, don't you remember what he did? And I had literally forgotten that he had accused me of adultery, stealing money and everything else because it wasn't true and I didn't hold it against him and I wasn't mad at it. I didn't have, it's like Teflon, nothing sticks. And I honestly had forgotten what he had said about me and just didn't bother me. Some of you think you can't live that way. Well, don't wake me up. That's the way I'm living. When you aren't sitting there and just selfish, you don't hurt the same. And you can objectively look at things and figure out, why is this person doing that? And you'll find out that, man, they've got problems of their own. And you can actually feel compassion for the person who's mad at you. So it's up to you to present your body as a living sacrifice. The problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. So you know what? This isn't just a one-time deal. You have to make a commitment that you're going to exalt God and other people first and then yourself is going to try and reassert itself and come back to the center of your focus the way that you've lived your whole life and you'll have to deal with it again and then it'll happen again and it's going to be a lifestyle of you constantly putting God and other people ahead of yourself. You'll never get to where you just do it. I've had people come up to me before and say, all right, I'm guilty, cast self out on me. The only way I can get rid of self is to kill you. As long as you're breathing in this body, you're going to have a self that wants to exert itself and become the center of focus. And you're going to have to constantly deny it. It has to be a living sacrifice. But there is a starting place. And there's a lot of people that, like I said, are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old adult brats and you have never really even consciously understood that that's the problem. You think everybody else is your problem. And you have to come to a place to where you start the change, where you crawl up on the altar and say, God, here I am. I want to die to myself. I want to make you and other people more important than myself. You know what, in a crisis situation, this will save your bacon. It will keep you from being hurt and devastated, and you'll just find that you're, you're God's responsibility. It's up to Him. You don't have to do it yourself. That's another definition of humility as a person who is not just taking everything and leaning on your own understanding and trying to get it done in yourself, but instead you've cast your care over on the Lord. That's true humility. A person that it's God's problem, not your problem. You know, I met uh, Jim Irwin, the astronaut that walked on the moon, and I was in Vietnam when they walked on the moon. I missed all of that. I didn't get to see it. So when I met him, I was so eager to learn things. I started pumping him and asking him all kinds of questions like, how do you go to the bathroom in weightlessness? And you know, things that were really important like that. <laughs> and anyway, we were visiting about different things, and... He started telling me, I thought that they had so much technology that they shot that space capsule towards the moon. It landed on the exact spot they had planned. And I was just overwhelmed with the technology to put a man on the moon. And I got to talking to him and I expressed that and he said, no, it wasn't like that. He said, we blasted off and they threw our capsule towards the moon. And he said, every 10 minutes for four days, we had a course correction." And he said, there are times that we were 90 degrees off. We were going this way and the moon was there. He says, we were 90 degrees off and we would have to have a course correction that came all the way around. He said, other times we were a fraction of a degree off and it was just a tiny bit. But he says, every 10 minutes for four days, there was a course correction. He said, the truth is we went to the moon like this. (laughs) And then there was a 500 mile long landing strip that they had planned to land and when they got out of the lunar lander, when he put his foot on the moon, he said, I was within five feet of missing a 500 mile long runway. And it just dawned on me that, you know what? This wasn't a great t- technological thing. It wasn't perfect. They went like this. It, everything wasn't perfect, but they made it. And the Lord just spoke to me about this exact thing we were talking about. And he said that this is the way it is with dealing with yourself. You don't ever just get it done. It's not like you are, and I'm dying to myself and that's it. And you never have to deal with it again. But you do blast off. You start moving in that direction. And then there's a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life. (laughs) Amen. You may make a decision tonight that, praise God, I'm going to put God and other people first. And then you get in your car and you get out here on the interstate and somebody pulls in front of you and all of a sudden, uh, bless them, Lord. See, we just look at it from our standpoint. They didn't even turn their blinker on. They cut me off. And you're only thinking about you. You don't know that that person didn't come from the doctor and just found out that they have a month to live. And they're thinking about something else and they didn't think about you. And Maybe their mate just divorced them. Maybe they just had a child die. Is it possible that they weren't thinking about you? (laughs) That they were thinking about something to do with themselves? You know, if you would think about other people, it would make you more patient and more kind and more loving towards people. So you'll have a course correction driving home. You may want to go back here and get the last DVD of something and... Somebody else wants it at the same time, and it's an opportunity for you to prefer somebody above yourself and to think that somebody's more important than you are. You'll spend the rest of your life making course corrections, but you've got to make a decision to blast off and to head that direction. You have to crawl up on the altar and make yourself a living sacrifice. And brothers and sisters, I'm saying this in love. This really isn't intended to hurt you. It's intended to help you. But there are a lot of adult brats sitting right here in this room because you've never been exposed to this. It hasn't become real to you. And you're praying everybody else to get out of your way because they're the problem and the truth is you're the problem. And you're the only one that you have authority over. And so the right response is to quit praying that everybody else change and you change. And you'll find out that there's a lot of people that will change when you change. Your perception of things will change dramatically when you change. And so let me just ask this. If, you are, if you've already dealt with this and you really have made yourself a living sacrifice, but even if you're off course and you aren't living that way right now and you're convicted... I ask you to be humble enough not to respond to my invitation. All right? You may think, well, everybody else is responding. But no, if you've dealt with it, then just make a course correction and get back on track and do what God told you to do. But if this is revelation to you and you realize this is the Holy Spirit speaking, that you know what, you've never really... Died to yourself. You've never even begun the process. You are an adult brat, self-centered, and you haven't dealt with it, and you need to start the process. You need to crawl on the altar and die to yourself. If that's you, I'd like you to just be humble enough, bold enough to stand right where you are, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and we are going to begin this process of dying to ourself and putting God and other people ahead of ourselves. Amen? If that's you, I want you to stand right now. Somebody's thinking, oh, aren't you going to have everybody bow their head and close their eyes? That's because self is worrying, what's everybody thinking about me? I want you to do this while everybody's head is up and their eyes are open so you'll get the maximum humiliation out of it. (laughs) Amen? We're dying to ourself. (laughs) Praise God. If you're going to receive this, just be bold and stand right now and say, it's my fault, it's not somebody else. I'm going I'm to specifically pray that if you're seated, this won't work. You can't bootleg this prayer. you got to stand to make this commitment. you got to humble yourself. There's some people, see, that stood. You were going to try and sneak this prayer in. You know, that's a pretty tough invitation. I bet you you haven't had many people say things like that to you before. And I'm in shock. When I give an invitation like that, how many people stand? Because you know, the truth is people recognize this when they hear it. And they've just not heard anybody do this. Most people are saying that, man, take care of self, promote self at all costs. But when you hear this truth, the Holy Spirit bears witness. And I tell you, coming to the end of yourself is the beginning of God. It's the beginning of joy. It's the beginning of peace. I'm impressed at the people that will stand and humble themselves. That's awesome. The Bible says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. Praise the Lord. Father, I thank you for these people that are standing. Thank you, Father, that they have humbled themselves and said that, Father, we have been self-centered. We've blamed other people when the truth is it's our fault. And, Father, they have stood tonight... To humble themselves. You said if we humble ourselves, that you will exalt us. Exalt us above this self-centeredness and these things that have caused us so much grief. Father, I thank you and I believe that you are just helping us to deal a death blow to this self-centeredness and self-promotion. Thank you, Jesus. We cannot die to ourselves by ourselves. We just crawl up on the altar... We say, Lord, make us a living sacrifice and we call right now for the fire of God to fall from heaven and consume these sacrifices. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to touch us and to just move in our life in such a way that self is no longer dominant and controlling us. Father, we thank you for that. You said that you are faithful and just to keep that which we commit. We make a commitment to put you and other people ahead of ourselves to look at things from other people's perspective. And Father, we ask you to keep it, hold us to it, remind us of it, to give us course corrections. Tomorrow when we wake up, remind us of this and help us to see things through your eyes and not just through selfish, self-centered eyes. Father, we trust that is your will for us and we believe that you're going to remind us of it and we just thank you in advance that this is not only going to change our lives but change other people father i pray that tomorrow you show people creative ways to bless somebody else to think about somebody else to do something to help them and not just think about people helping themselves i thank you and we agree and we We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719 635 1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333 Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.